Hey, welcome to the Rain and Morale podcast. So do you ever feel like screaming out in the office, on Zoom or outside the school gates, for the love of God, come on, really? Then if this is you and you're looking for an honest, fun and frank podcast on life and business, then sit back and listen to me, Rain and Morale. I'll be bringing great people on the show to talk, share and debate their life experiences and business challenges. Keeping the show unpolished, but in a fun and unique British style with sarcasm, tenacity, or maybe a few swear words or tears. This podcast keeps it real, honest, raw, and removes the bullshit in the only way I know how, through authenticity and getting shit done. Think of it less like the Housewives of New York or TOWIE with the lipo and drama, and more like the house lives of the real world. I hope you'll take something away to be better informed, laugh, smile, or maybe even finally get in the confidence to shout, come on, really. So enjoy. Hi, Hugo. Welcome to the Rain Morale podcast. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks to yourself. Thanks for having me, Rona. Uh, I'm really well, thank you. And um, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. And to introduce uh, Hugo Kruger, um, he's also a fellow YouTube podcaster as well, so um, he might be interviewing me um, before I know it. Um, he's a writer and a civil nuclear engineer. Um, and so Hugo has done an awful lot of work um, in all things energy uh, related. And I know I had seen a few previous podcasts. So we really want to talk today um, about the kind of geopolitical issues that face energy specifically um, within, within Africa. Um, but Hugo also holds a master's in nuclear civil engineering um, and also a bachelor's from the University of Pretoria. So welcome, Hugo, and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to this discussion. Excellent. And Hugo and I were just discussing his wife is Persian, so he, he sits on the floor and uh, is super flexible. I was thinking, oh, Christ, I wouldn't be able to get up if I did that. So um, Hugo, over to you. Let's chat a little bit about what was it when you'd kind of heard the podcast with with Paul Hinks and then what was it that made you go look I really need to talk about this let's 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 do it so uh, I say this I've got a lot of respect for Paul Hinks because he's an investor with a lot of experience in Africa and, and he worked for utilities from before so he didn't just go into finance he's got a I think he's got an engineering background if I'm not mistaken so he's got he's got a holistic sense of things and that's very important in in the energy sector and um, I always find it interesting when I talk to investors overseas, because I'm based in Paris now, but I'm originally from South Africa, that they don't understand history or they, they, they've got, they always ask, why is your government act- acting so irrationally in Africa? Why can't they just see the business case? It's so easy, our proposal, and yet the reaction is so stubborn. And uh, what I came to conclude as a student of history as well, and I've written on the history of Africa and Zimbabwe in particular, um, is that people don't take into account history when it comes into investment. Um, it is just brushed out. It's all, especially in, in Western countries, especially in the UK, it's all about cost. It's just making money and the cost and the benefits. And that is how they pitch the investments. And I feel like if you're going to do that in an African context, given the historical context, you're going to run into problems. And we're seeing it. We're seeing green energy um, renewables, for example, scaling very well in Europe, in in, in UK, in, in North America and Australia. And then you look at the low-income countries, it's flat. It's as if there's been no investment. And my suspicion is a lot of this has to do with geopolitical considerations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think 
well, firstly, the British aren't doing that well when it comes to following up on their green promises. So let's just put that out there right, right now. Um, and also there's a, there's a level, I guess, of naivety for a lot of people who just mm. assume Africa is one country um, and, 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 and it absolutely isn't. And then I guess from your side of things, I think, and, and, and a level of honesty from my side is like this whole green economy Mm. is also can be very dangerous and misleading because of the amount of materials and extraction that we need to do. So whilst we might say in the West, oh, yeah, we're doing really well, but like you say, you guys, I know you're speaking from Paris, but if no one's investing, then how are they going to catch up? How is the Global South going to decarbonise? Yeah. How are they going to grow their um their economies in the sense of prosperity for its people. Yeah, so I, I want to give you numbers just to, to, to speak to your point there. Um, if you follow the UN projections now on population, and they tend to be good, I mean, it's predicting the future. You never know how accurate they will be in the future. But by the end of this century, if there's 10 people on this planet, four of them will be African, four will be Asian. Okay, so Africa will be as big as Asia at the end of the century. And Europe, I think, is one out of 10. America, North and South America together is one out of 10. And Australia is a rounding error, okay, in the, in the population oh, statistics. Sorry, Australians, if you're listening. <laughs> so uh, just that amount of people, Africa is going to basically double its population. They need energy and water and infrastructure, things that the Western world already developed in the 1950s on Britain, even before during the Industrial Revolution. So Africa still has to go through that intensive industrial growth phase that China, and I think China is getting out of it now, as some people have been speculating, right? Because China's mm -hmm. material consumption is falling. But just to give you a scary number, somewhere in the last 10 years, there was a period where in three years, the Chinese poured more concrete than the entire America did in 100 years. Okay, so Africa still has to do that. Concrete is CO2, still is CO2. So it's, it's not even a debate about electricity. It's just basic development is going to push up our carbon emissions. Um, and I, I, I don't see how you can... I work in concrete technology. I, I, there's no alternative to cement. Once the buildings are built, they are there. That's the, that's the argument. Then you just need to maintain them and we use less materials, which is the you know, sustainable path. Fine, you don't have to rebuild your cities, but you have to build it first. Right. So the restriction on carbon is being interpreted in Africa as you're not allowed to develop. You're not allowed mm -hmm. to have what we are having. So, you know, the green energy, it's irrelevant if it's cost and benefits. They're saying, but wait a minute, South Africa, which is the most developed on the African continent, is 1% of the world's emissions. Any carbon tax, no matter how effective or inefficient, because we know this debate if they work or not, will have yeah. no measurable effect on the temperature of the earth because China is this, you know, ton amount of CO2 and America is this ton amount in Britain is. So, you know, I, I feel sometimes there's an insensitivity to these arguments of basic, good old school, just development, you know, um, and, and that is lost in the argument. And how do they interpret the, the, the geopolitically? They say, this is neocolonialism. You're impeaching my development. You're being colonial. We've seen this before. It's Cecil John Rhodes coming back, basically. <laughs> yeah, and I think... Look, there's 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 a lot there in terms of what you've just kind of kind of brought down in into that. And, and actually, whether it's for green infrastructure or whether mm. it's just infrastructure, the reality is we can't hide behind the fact that we do not have yet materials that can be made, manufactured, shipped and produced carbon free, firstly. Yeah. Um, 
and then also the circularity element so to, to a point I agree it's kind of like we have to build this stuff but then what's do you see any opportunity in helping the global south so not just Africa but Asia etc in building not the way we've necessarily built but in a way that can become a circular process or a far mm. more circular process rather than just building what we've done knowing that what's going to happen is going to happen eventually well there are signs of this so there's always signs of optimism I, I don't think india is going to make or is making the necessary developmental mistakes that britain made okay they're using modern technologies for example fiber optic cables as opposed to the, the copper they last much longer they're much more resilient okay so we're talking about resilient infrastructure so if you build to the highest spec your design life of infrastructure is much longer and then your material intensity goes down after it's initially built. That initial building phase, unfortunately, um, you're still with us, Hugo. Oh, I'm having one of those mornings today. So we've just lost Hugo. Um, he is currently, I'm hoping, well, he's definitely not in South Africa, stop, so I know right. it's not a left. Oh, Hugo, he's back. Sorry, I was just talking to the oh. listeners that I know you're not in South Africa, so it's not load shedding. Um, but Hugo, we, we just lost you at the point where um, you, were, you were talking about India and fibre optic. And obviously, right. the better the quality you build with to start, the longer the, you know, longer generative side that, of it. That's right. So, you know, we don't have to go through typewriters before we get cell phones, for example. Cell phones are more less material intense, but they still use materials. That is the fact of it. So even a circular solution, if you will, um, I, I'm personally skeptical if you can build infrastructure for initial costs circularly. I mean, you have to dig it out of the ground somehow, but you can make it more resilient from the beginning. The base roads, the base tarmac, the base concrete, and concrete technology has improved dramatically. They, they no longer, you know, 28 days and 90 days, and they last a very long time if done properly. But now right. we sit with this added issue in the third world and the global self is a more neutral world term these days. Uh, of unskilled labor you must take yeah. that into account how do you how, how do you transfer those labor so the, the, when it comes to the investment if you say you want to help them you need to think of all these requirements and this in in the cost debate i think this comes missing so civil engineers we look at this we talk to the unions we talk to the yes. investors we talk to all of them and we say okay these are all the requirements of the process and they all flow into my design and then ultimately i come up with a cost now that cost might not be the one the investors necessarily chose it might be a little bit more expensive but ultimately yeah. it satisfies the what I call the habitat requirements. Um, and 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 that's sort of the, the message, you know, I, I want to send forward. It's like I'm not against any investor, but the investors must be very careful what they're doing. Now, now I'll give you a practical example. South Africa, there's no debate about getting rid of coal. And now coal stations were built in the 1980s. And the green investors are saying, well, this is a great opportunity. Your coal's coming to the end of the life. We're just going to get rid of the coal and it's all going to be wind and solar. Okay. What they don't yeah. take into account is historically, um, these coal plants were not just built for cost and energy. They were built to settle geopolitical disputes during the apartheid years in particular, during the colonial years. So the colonial authorities would put coal stations here to bring one tribe into cooperation with another one. Right. It's morally debatable if you can do that today, but that's the reality of why they're there. Now, there's one coal station in South Africa, I think it's called Kumati, that's now being closed down by the government. What's happening? Those communities around it are furious because their habitat's been right. destroyed. And they're saying, we're not going to get jobs and they're saying, on top of that, you guys want coal. Well, do you realize the wafers that go into your solar panels are made on the same land that we're burning the coal? 
So we're not yeah. going to allow you to build to get more solar panels. So inevitably, the circle it can become a very ugly debate. You know, yeah. which, that's what I, I sort of try and, and and just caution against is saying, in terms of coal, my solution is people don't like hearing this. Upgrade it to what we call heli coal. It still emits CO two. I'd be the first to admit that, but it, it takes right. it down from ninety percent to ten percent. So you get the it's still directional. We're still going to emit Sorry, a little bit of CO two. Yeah. To somebody who's probably a little bit um, stupid in this area, most people would think coal is this black lump, it's in the ground, you take it out and mm. you do what you do with it. What is this coal that you refer to and why is that only 10% carbon so, emissions and, and where, where do you find it in the world? So uh, first of all, coal differs in the amount of what we call carbon content. So you've got this black lump. And the amount of energy you can get out varies depending on where in the world you are. And we yeah. have byproducts of coal like fly ash in South Africa that we add and make green cement. Ironically, green cement comes from coal. Okay, So, you know, there's a, there's, there's a whole production process behind the coal industry. Now, yeah. um, when I say Heli coal, it's called high efficiency, low intense uh, emissions coal. Um, they used to, Trump called it clean coal. And I think that's why God, people got angry because he said something and it was bad. And basically what happens is they, they boil the water, not at, I can't remember the temperature. It's not 300 or 350, but it's a 500 degree temperature. Okay. What I call supercritical state of water. And when you do that, you end up reducing the emissions into the process, but it demands a higher quality coal. So your supply chains have to change. So there is an integration cost. Okay. And that's just that. Sorry, I'm just trying to follow the the, the flow. Sorry, I can't no. speak. But surely having to boil the water, for example, at mm. such a high degree, don't those emissions add to this piece of coal? And so you wouldn't have to do that to the coal to get it more efficient. Does that make sense? Um, no, so the, your efficiency depends on your input and output temperature of the water that you boil. And basically you're changing that difference. Um, and and it just happens that the the final efficiency of the of the process is better in terms of electricity. First of all, you get out. So let's say you get, I think with traditional coal, for a member, if you have a hundred megawatt you're burning, you only get thirty out, which is inefficient. Now with these, you get like fifty five or something. So it's a little bit higher. So just upgrading the coal in South Africa would add more electricity on the grid automatically. Okay, that's just electricity. In terms of carbon emissions, um, the amount of emissions that works out in the end process is reduced as well, okay? But it is not zero. I'd be the first to admit it. And you still have coal mining. So you still have uh, an extractive Extraction. resource. Okay, yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm all open to, to that argument. I'm saying that's an intermediary step. I'm not saying it's a final step. Okay, mm -hmm. just to prevent those conflicts from happening. At the same time, you can still expand wind and solar as we are all doing anyways. And if you do that, you say, okay, I've got coal as an intermediary step to settle the political conflicts, but I'm adding the wind and solar, integrating it, so that the communities are not hostile to these things. So they get used to it over time. And then when that coal station comes to the end of its life, which will be 20 or 30 years from now, okay, and take into account as we're doing that, the rest of the world's already decarbonizing, uh, you can easily, those guys are used to solar and wind already, or, the, or nuclear, whatever you, your solution is, they'll just move, around, move over to it. They say, okay, it's not a scary thing anymore. And that, that's yeah. sort of the, that's how I would handle the conflict. So I'm, I'm seeing this as through lens of conflict resolution. Now the economists would come to me and say, "But that's an expensive solution." Yes. <laughs> and I, I say to them, "Well, um, see how expensive it's going to be if these guys are going to get angry and they're going to break your solar panels because they are taking your job, their jobs, you know." Or equally, see how expensive it's going to be if we don't do something. Yeah. And then in the next thirty to forty years, you've got potentially 
civil unrest or you've got migrating people or, you know, if you've got if a basic human needs cannot be met in their place of home and comfort, there's only one surely outcome. Yeah, I, I mean, I, the UK would understand this. I mean, I don't know if you remember, I, I was too young, obviously, I was not born yet, when Thatcher got rid of the coal workers. Um, I do. My dad was actually, my dad used to work down the mines. So yes, I do. I remember it well. So, so I worked with some of the older engineers who were about to go into retirement when I started my career, and they cry still when I talk about it. Okay. Yep. That was traumatic for the UK. France never did that. They kept their nuclear stations, they kept upgrade. France's GDP per capita is the same as the UK. I'm not even sure if the UK should have done it. They could have had a better strategy. I mean, the idea that Thatcher was so hostile to the workers, and fine, the unions were also guilty. I know it's a big debate there. Um, yeah. But that conflict, we're not trying to avoid. Because remember, in the UK, it's English-speaking people, by and large, or Welsh people. You know, it was, it was by and large, a monoculture. You know, I know the UK is diverse, but that had it. So those shocks and pains could be absorbed by migrating to cities. In Africa, we have multicultural societies with historical mm -hmm. conflicts between each other, with war that is within recent memory. If you're going to bring that type of shock to the system, those growth pains, economists call it, or IMF economists, yeah. you're going to create conflict. And I would not be surprised we create revolutions in one of these countries by just not thinking yeah. straight. And, and that's what I, I sort of caution against. And, and actually, Higa, you touched there a little bit on um, the, the shock to systems. And I guess... Sometimes people like me or um, many other people will go, well, actually, it's the systems that need a shock. They need a good kick up the butt, but not at the expense of everyday people. It's 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 kind of, you know, we hear a lot about kind of escrow and South Africa and load shedding mm -hmm. and all of this sort of stuff. Um, obviously, I'm a trustee for Education Africa, so I hear quite a lot about what's going on and we get amazing offers of support for free laptops and IT and I'm like but it, it can't use them I, I just can't use them so talk to me a little bit more about that side of, of, of the problem yeah so give you ESCOM as a good example of this how did ESCOM become as bad as it did so let's go back to the apartheid years ESCOM was run as a non-profit organization an NGO in the true sense it didn't make money not a, a lobby group or an activist group and um, th at that stage it could set its own tariff now, because it could set its own tariff, it was allowed, like all school utilities in the UK, to only recover the cost of its projects. Then, in the, it was actually started in the late 80s, but in the 90s with Mandela's government, they took a decision to say, we're going to go Thatcher. Okay, We're going to deregulate the market because that's going to grow. So what happened? They brought in a board by the name of NERSA, the National Energy Regulator of South Africa. And since then, they've been setting a tariff. I don't know how to determine a tariff that forces ESCOM to sell at a loss. Okay, So you're forcing utility to sell at a loss. It's basically a policy, if you think of it, that amounts to systemic sabotage in process. And that's why the debtors accumulate and the wheels are falling off the bus. You're forcing the utility right. to sell at the loss. It can't recover its costs. So there's a lot of blame at bad management and corruption in ESCOM. And sure, some of those things are, are totally there. I, I don't deny yeah. any of it. But if you have a policy framework that doesn't allow it to perform its duty, even the best engineers and managers can't, can't run it. Then in 1998, um, the ESCOM went to the government of South Africa and said, listen, guys, our population is going to double by 2008. We need power stations ASAP. Government said the market will solve it. Okay. Businessmen came in and they said, well, we can't compete for that tariff. It's, it's, not, it's not going to work. You're forcing ESCOM to sell the loss. This is a very risky investment. So there was no investment. Then right. ESCOM got the message to fire its civil engineers. 
by 2008, when they, the government said, now you need a coal station as soon as possible. Now, coal stations take years to plan. I mean, it's not just a thing you dream up overnight. Uh, yeah. What happened? They had one civil engineer and he was barely out of university. Okay. And now they built these... Not you, by the way, was it? <laughs> no, luckily not. But it's it, it's Mandupi and Kusili power plants have exploded in budget since then. I'm not surprised because you're building with starting at scratch. They had to get old contractors to come in. It was just a nightmare. So the entire institution was equipped with the worst means ever to solve the electrical problems as the population was increasing. <laughs> okay, So now people are saying, but that's a nationalization failure and we should just privatize. And that's where I come in. I say, no, I think you're going to destroy the country. And I really mean it when I say that because... Remember, I said ESCOM was used to solve these conflicts. Now you want to privatize it? You're going to create provocations, and we're seeing signs of it. Okay, that, That's just ESCOM. So my solution to South Africa is allow ESCOM to set its own tariff, get rid of this regulator, but allow the private sector to come in and compete against the utility. Okay, Then you solve both worlds. But the private sector must be honest as well, because, I mean, you had this conversation with Paul between on and off-grid solar. So if you connect solar to the grid on-grid, that's fine. Uh, it's very cheap and affordable, but that eats into the revenue of the fossil fuel companies. And now they're going to say, but you guys are stealing our money. It's not fair. They're more competitive. If it's off-grid, which is now happening, the, the, the guys are saying, the IPPs, independent power providers are saying, but um, somebody needs to pay for the grid because that's government's responsibility. And ESCOM yeah. saying, but wait a minute, you want me to pay for something and then you want to bring in a product that's going to compete and destroy me. You see, so you're constantly facing these tensions that it yeah. is coming in. And the taxpayer is saying, why are we doing it? So that, that's why I say I would not rock the boat too much. I'd rather let ESCOM recapitalize. It's a lot of debt, but it's possible to repay it, give it a proper framework and compete against the private sector. And then you, you, you don't solve things. Because um, just a final point on this. This happened in France. Okay, You think it's just an African country. Uh, private investors came in and they were eating into electricity to France's uh, revenue. And what's happened now? EDF has waited for the oil shock. The French, they bought out all the investors and they're renationalizing. Okay. And that to me is a sign of geopolitics always takes precedence over the market. And that's what the investors don't want to hear. So I'm very worried in South Africa where ESCOM's going to say, okay, we're under threat. The government sees it under threat, national security risk, energy security, nationalize everything. And then you can lose your money. And uh, that's my warning to investors. If you push the privatization argument too far, and if you push the green things under a framework that makes the state feel under threat, it will react against you. And then we end up with more carbon emissions, fewer green stuff, and, and investors losing their money. You know, So th that's my message. You know? Yeah, I think just, just two things on that. One, why was the policy ever brought in in the first place? to limit the money they could make because mm. anyone listening to that will go who in their bloody right mind would provide a service that cost them 10 pounds uh, but they can only recoup five pounds of it back why was that policy put on them so that is a million dollar question um, it was brought in by the minister of public enterprises at the time we don't know what the motivations was we see what happened in after the 73 oil shock is everyone had chicago school economics in the head deregulate 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 um, and they brought these policies in. It happened in Russia in the 1990s as well. And part of this war in Ukraine, I mean, it obviously doesn't justify the war, has to do with the Russians saying that you gave us bad advices, Mr. Bill Clinton, that destroyed our utilities under the Soviet system. And that also collapsed communities. And they seeing it as sabotage. The Western world said, no, this is sound economic advice. The best economists are saying it. <laughs> okay, so I, I don't know. There were advisors and there was people trained in certain schools of thought. And it's 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 like social movements. So I don't... I don't know if I should attribute blame to it, but
But the idea was ESCOM was going to cut its cost and then the market will compete against it. That was the idea. It, in practice, it just accumulated debt because the government at the same time said you need to now electrify all these black people's uh, villages who were neglected under apartheid. Okay, yes. so, so you're giving them extra tasks with no means to do so. And that's that's it's just insane policy that you would look at. Okay. And I'm I'm surprised we're still continuing with the same framework. No, no, no. And I think again, this goes back to policies, frameworks, and systems. You know, yeah. there's a there's a cause here keep, that keeps coming out. And actually, interestingly, you know, even here in the UK, um, where we've privatised um, railway, water, all of these what you would call basic infrastructures, they have all collapsed under private ownership, sadly. You know, here in the UK, there's at any one time over 300 points of sewage spillage into our oceans. We've got now um, one river that is completely dead of any um, animals, fish, any, you know, kind of life in it. And but the shareholders getting paid huge amounts but, of money that was there to save. So we're saying, actually, no, we want it nationalised, bring it back yeah. international, because the moment you go private, it's all about the shareholders, it's all about paying the dividends. Meanwhile, we we reduce it to its bare bones, look at the NHS, um, and then it collapses. Yeah, and, and I, I'm in favor of nationalization, what I call it, what they used to call the New Deal in America, you know, old school labor politics. It's a mixed economy. It's how Japan works. It's how Asian economies work. And they seem to be quite successful at it. Um, you see, this is a big debate about electricity. What is it? Is it a stock? Okay. Is it a service? Or is it infrastructure? It's all three of those things. And if it's infrastructure, it in part remains the responsibility of the state. Now, I look at the UK utilities. I mean, you guys have Electricity de France managing some of your nuclear stations. Well, that might not yes, be UK money. That. It might not be UK money, but it's a gov- another government doing it. So, so, And your railways, I think, is, is run by Alstom, which is also a French company. So, Yeah, maybe- the Netherlands, I think it's the Dutch or the Netherlands own most yeah. of the offshore wind turbines in the oceans, not us. Yeah. So is it is it really private capital? I, I, it's sorry, it's government. It's another government. So the debate to me is simple. Where is the limits of privatization? I think that's placed in the backdrop of it. And what you're now seeing in the UK, I've seen an article in The Guardian from last year, which said that um, even the UK, they think of renationalizing railway and it would pay, take seven years of pension fund money to pay back the money because there's the profit incentives out. Railways. And railways was well run in the UK before it got privatized, right? So, yeah. um, and we, railways... We still, those... we still had a few dodgy trains and a few... Uh... Sure, sure. <laughs> but, but yes, it was. But, but railways is a good solution for climate, isn't it? Because people don't travel with their cars. It's better than electrical cars in terms of material input. It's Completely. much better in so many ways for big cities. But you see, this is this is where the argument comes in. They don't want to, they don't want to open that debate because it can put some investors out of business. It's the same argument with nuclear power. Nuclear power in South Africa is the most affordable of all the sources. If you look at the yeah. balance sheet of ESCOM, but why won't the media talk of it? Because we set up the contracts in nuclear power to do what they call vendor financing. It's government pension money against government money. Okay, so it's nationalized. That locks out all middlemen. Yeah. So there's no middleman, no money to steal because there's no money to steal or there's no, no guy that can come into the deal. They're not going to advertise nuclear power as green. you know. So it's there's no constituency for it. And um, well, my argument guess... of nuclear is just make one or two power stations. I'm not asking for the entire country like France. 
if you put one in Port Elizabeth, where we run out of water, you can use it for the desalination of seawater. And that yeah. can allow our inland rivers to recover because they are, South Africa ran out of water in 2008. We are draining more than we have. Yes. We're in desperate need. So one or two nuclear stations combined with the green stuff for the private sector, because private investors like 15-year returns. And that's great for wind and solar. Nuclear, 60 years, <laughs> okay, 80 years. That's usually pension fund money. Um, so, you know, you need to... You need to bring the best of both worlds sort of what i'm saying like i'm 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 i appreciate that the private sector is creative and more dynamic than governments but sometimes if you push it too far it's you know 15 years you have to rebuild all your wind farms that also doesn't make sense to me or 20 years whatever the life cycle is right and, and you and i both know that when when a lot of investors are looking actually if we've got someone who's willing to look you know as far as 10 years that's that's quite progressive yeah. yet alone sort of you know, 60 years, that's like, oh my God, I'm dead and so are my grandkids. So um, I think I think one of the biggest things that as citizens as well is that, well, hold on a minute, why is this always about our pension money? And, and that's the rhetoric that they give out. It's like, oh, well, yeah, we could do this, but we're going to have to take all your pension money to do it and that'll collapse and whatever. And so you're constantly stuck in this turmoil between, oh my God, I've worked hard, I've put this money away all my life and... Yeah. You know, but, it's... but if you if you look at pension money, it's an interesting debate to me because all infrastructures, well, most infrastructures, ever been funded by pension money. If you think of it, what is pension money? It's the money of your children. Now, if you believe in your country and the future of your country, you would put your money of your children into the country, right? But they they say no, it's your pension money. But wait a minute, it's private pension money or investor money that is going into these privatization deals. So it's it's crony capitalists, basically. And, and that to me is a sort of a st type of propaganda. I mean, I'm not saying let's gamble away our pension money and inflate the monetary supply and, and, and things. Nobody is making that argument. But to have some of these things run under pension money where there is no profit incentive, okay? It's just good old utilities, long-term state planning, okay? So central planner, <laughs> communism, yeah. if you will. That makes complete sense to me. And you don't need to pass laws to regulate the market out. Businesses can compete for their 10 to 15-year cycles if they want to. But infrastructure, to me, is a responsibility of the state. I mean, I'm saying this as a civil engineer. They say I'm biased and I'm a, I'm a socialist, things for that. But, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense to me to get the private sector into the infrastructure yeah. as much as we are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and just in case my um, kids are listening to this, I just want to put it out there that my pension has got absolutely nothing to do with them when i go when i get time to actually right. retire if i am physically and mentally capable i am spending every penny i've got um so yeah don't 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 hold out kids i'm afraid no, but your but, your, pen, your pension money is being invested so they can make money for you when you're in retirement Th that's how i see it okay and they need to start working because <laughs> like you need to, to pay for they, it. they definitely need to start if my 14 year old does have a part that uh, two part-time jobs now bless her so no she's she's uh, uh, she's and, definitely and, in and you see, we're in a very low interest rate environment at the moment, which is beneficial for long-term infrastructure like nuclear, okay? A nuclear plant under a 3% loan, which is very high at the day's rate, will pay itself back in 18 to 20 years, okay? And then afterwards, the tariff is extraordinarily cheap. Uh, nuclear waste has a half-life. It pays for itself. You just put it in a safe location, okay? Um, but in a low interest well, people environment... People would argue, people would, know? I guess people would challenge that and go, but where's a safe place? Like there is, let's be honest, Hugo, you and I both know there isn't a safe place to store so, what so, essentially is highly toxic. 
So um, highly toxic, it depends what level. There's a threshold where it's really toxic. And then there's a level where there's a debate, is it beneficial or not harmful? So you have natural locations of radiation like hot spas that people go to that has gives you more radiation than a nuclear power plant. Okay, uh, Outside the perimeter, obviously not where the reaction takes place. But South Africa has a waste depository in the Karoo Desert. The desert's the middle of nowhere. It's, it's one of the driest locations on Earth. And the water table is uh, one kilometer below the surface. So the risk of corrosion and leakage is zero. And we built that in the 1980s. And that location is 100 square kilometers facility. It's, right. it's semi-militarized. Um, that's got enough waste for the entire South Africa for the next four or 500 years, okay, if we burn nuclear. So, yes, it's not perfect. I accept that there will always be some waste. There's people talking about investing in waste and the fuel cycle. And I'm a bit skeptical of that debate because – when you start investing in the fuel cycle to a certain extent, you open a debate of weapons proliferation. Now, right. that's a big issue. Now, South Africa has signed a non-proliferation treaty. We're the only country to voluntarily give up our nuclear weapons. So I think we've shown ourselves more responsible than, you know, frankly, the UK and America and other countries. We've gotten rid of them. Yeah. And we've complied with all the protocols of international law. Now, the great thing to me is South Korea is starting to build nuclear power stations offshore. They are non-proliferation country. It's completely possible now to say we will only buy from countries that don't make nuclear weapons. And that means nuclear power can lock out all these guys like Russia and America and to the extent Britain, who still has nuclear weapons, and force you to sign a non-proliferation treaty. So then th that to me is a very good strategy to say we will, we will only accept power stations built by countries that sign the NPT. And if that means South Korea builds all of them for the world, that's fine. Until you guys sign it, we put pressure on you. Yeah. So th that's how I would see it. And there's a lot of resistance against nuclear power for this reason, because the militaries don't like hearing that, um, wait, countries are making nuclear power, but they don't want nuclear weapons. Because the way the non-proliferation treaty works is other countries do inspections on you. So, right. so imagine America having to be inspected by the Russians. <laughs> you know, that, that, that they yeah, don't want to imagine. Can't quite imagine that. that, the door opening. Hi. But, that, but yeah. that's what international law is about. Yes. You know? and, and, if and I we, guess, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I guess that loops us back around to this whole topic, which is geopolitical reality of what yeah. we're dealing with with energy. And actually, it's, it's, let's be honest, if we just stopped all, all military spend around the world and manufacturing production, that is trillions and trillions of dollars and extraction I, I mean, and steel the, and the u.s military is the biggest buyer of oil okay and, and we know the wars in the middle east was definitely oil played a role there you know so only ignorant ramus can deny that the u.s military's carbon footprints bigger than the african continent and when you count carbon footprints for the uk they never count your military by the way because they know these guys need lots of fuel to to do what they do they also they also don't count um, biofuel and essentially they should yeah. because it emits actually more carbon and the process through it so there is there are lots of flaws in the measurement of the system and also it's, when we talk about lots of carbon, budget counting yeah yeah and also it's really important and for those listening as well that when we talk about carbon and some people will go well china are this and china are that well actually we've just exported most of our emissions first and foremost and secondly we need to factor in historical emissions okay because yeah. that's the reality if you want to look at it honestly and truly you have to factor that in and and china just to speak to that point so china is going the route of upgrading their coal stations and then eventually upgrading them to nuclear that seems to be their route by just right. upgrading their coal stations they're already reducing their co2 just upgrading them the newer coal stations being built in china is not like uh, charles dickens's london anymore 
Okay, the SO2 and NO2 is out of the air, but there is still CO2. I mean, I, I, we don't deny that, but it is much cleaner at the moment. So they're upgrading them first and they are preparing their nuclear technology like we had the Pebble Bay in South Africa and the alternative technologies. Remains to be seen if they will achieve that to replace them. Why? Even though it's more expensive maybe than the solar and wind combination, and China, by the way, is doing that as well, it does not destroy those communities in the process. So that social cost is never taken into account. Right. And that's what I, that's what I say. I don't want to see more Margaret Thatcher type solutions across the world. You know, yeah. you can bring you can bring all these requirements together and still make it economically affordable. That often requires a bit of taxpayer money and government spending. And that's where these guys, private investors, say, no, 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 we don't want government involved because we're more efficient. I'm like, okay, if you're more efficient, why aren't you solving these problems? And they obviously aren't. Yeah. Now, Hugo, and I think that's a really a good solid place to kind of end this. It's the reality of having the awareness of the social impact above and beyond anything else over GDP, mm. over, you know, profit and loss. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've touched on a lot here on geopolitical challenges and issues. And I just, you know, thank you for the honest debate as well. It's really great to do that. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll probably get you back on again in the future and we'll, we'll carry on the conversation. But thank you so much for joining me, Hugo. It's been really yeah. fascinating. Thank you as well, Ron. I appreciate the conversation. Very welcome. Thanks. So that's it. You've made it. The show's over. Thank you for being with us. I hope you've been able to take something away, maybe solve a problem, or just know you're not alone. Here's hoping it made you smile with a few laughs along the way. Please feel free to find me on all social media channels, and you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just search the Ronan Morale podcast. Have an awesome day and see you next time.